right? Today, our message is the entire chapter of Genesis 4, but for the sake of the reading of the words, since I want to go through it section by section, we will read the first two verses uh, at the beginning. God's Word tells us, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. This is the word of the Lord. may be seated. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and minds to understand your word. This is a gift of your spirit. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would just allow us to receive today the eternal truths of this chapter, that we might be encouraged, even as we are made aware of how treacherous and fearsome our foe is. Father, give me clarity, give me precision, give me conviction, but most of all, give me your Holy Spirit, that what I say today might be pure and your word to us. We pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. So you are now in the second week of our series for the fall uh, called Far and Away. You have this picture on your bulletin. It's the picture of a, a, a large chasm with two big cliffs on the side. We are going through Genesis 4 through 11 and this image of the chasm is, is kind of the operating uh, picture of everything that we see because as we have left the Garden of Eden by our own treacherous disobedience, we have found ourselves separated from God. Uh, sin has made us far from the presence of God, but even more, sin has corrupted our hearts so that they are pointed away from God. So we are far and away. And the situation for us in this uh, uh, world is that there's no way for us to get across that chasm. But we also talked last week about the fact that even though we are helpless and even though we are moving away from God, even though we continue to live in sin, God has not allowed us to be left and forsaken. He has sent across that chasm in these early chapters of Genesis a thread that goes from one side to the other, from his side to ours, and that thread becomes the plot line of the entire Scripture, which will eventually pull across the only bridge of redemption, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so today we are going to see more details of this chasm, and it is going to be fearsome. We are going to be looking at it through the, the, the picture of war and how great and total this war is in our world. But as we look at this war and we see all of its dimensions, we again will be left with that thread unbroken. Before Becky and I had kids, we took our only vacation to Europe. We went to uh, uh, the Baltic area, uh, saw Norway and Sweden and Germany and 
uh, Estonia and a couple other places. We went all over uh, uh, the, the northern part of Europe and uh, was, was fascinated with the ancient culture and the ancient architecture and just, just this different world. And we would have a tour guide in every city that we went to. And in every one of those tours, there was always this place where the tour guide stopped and got very sober and described, this is something that the Nazis did. This is something that was destroyed in World War II. This is something that was ruined, some treasure, some piece of history, some uh, aspect of national identity that was, was destroyed by the malevolent evil that was Nazism and Hitler and that was brought in World War II. It's no surprise that we call World War II the Great War. I visited the the World War II uh, Museum twice in the last month, and it is staggering how complete that war was, how much the life that we have right now was truly hanging in the balance based on things that almost seemed coincidental. That was the great war, and that great war seemed to stain every part of the world. And there was a point in that war where the thought of victory was distant, even impossible to imagine. But that war is only a small image of the truly great war that Scripture tells us. And that great war actually begins here in Genesis 4. We are used to the story of Cain and Abel, and I could give you a short sermon by saying, be more like Abel and don't be like Cain. But that's not God's purpose in this passage. God is provided this passage for us to see the great war between the child of the serpent and the child of the woman. Genesis 4 is detailing the first salvo in this war. Now this war was announced to us back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In the judgment, we are told by God these words, I will put enmity, warfare, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This, as we have told you, is the first announcement, the first promise of God for a Savior to come. And this is the only thing that Adam and Eve have to hope in. It's evident that it is this hope, this battle between the two uh, seed, that that uh, frames Genesis chapter 4. For Look again at verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Do you hear the enthusiasm that Eve has? Finally, we've, we've got our deliverer. We've got the one that is going to uh, fulfill the promise. And it is from understanding Eve's hope in her firstborn Cain that we understand the war that is in front of us. You see, the war in Genesis 4 is a war that goes all the way through the Bible. We see it in the exodus between the Egyptians who enslave uh, the, the chosen people Israel and Israel's deliverance. We see it in the story of Goliath, the giant, the fearsome killer, and David. 
We see it at the climax between those who put Jesus on the cross and Jesus himself. We see it in the early church in Acts between Rome and its persecution and the survival of the church. What we see in in, in the, the story of history is that the enemy gets some very impressive victories. In fact, as we look at Genesis 4, it looks for the majority of the time that God's side is losing. That is the perspective that Genesis 4 provides. Great victories and God appearing to be losing. Can, Can you relate to that? Culturally, do you, do you sometimes feel like, my goodness, the good of this world is just disappearing day by day, election cycle by election cycle? Do, do, you, do you feel like, my, I, I can't even uh, uh, trust giving my kids uh, perhaps to the public school? If, if, um, or or do, you, do you look at these uh, court rulings and you're like, my goodness, abortion and the treasuring of life, sexuality and all of the permissiveness of the culture. It feels like we're on the losing side. And we may be on the losing side for a long time. There are very few cultural prognosticators that that see a major change in this tide. So we feel it culturally, we feel it as, 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 as a group, but even more, you wrestle with it personally. I mean, I know that there are probably people in this room that feel like they are on the losing side of, of their marriage, or on the losing side of, of, of their family, or on the losing side of some besetting sin. No matter what, they continue to feel defeated and unable to overcome. And this, this war wakes up every day to throw a new onslaught at you, a new onslaught of temptation, a new onslaught of, of compromise, and it's wearisome and it's fatiguing. And some days we don't even make it. Some days we do compromise. Some days we do succumb to temptation. Genesis 4 reveals to us the treacherous tactics the enemy uses to oppose God's promise of redemption. And I use those words treacherous in, uh, intentionally. They don't play fair. And it is very possible to be on the losing side of them. Though Genesis 4 presents a bleak picture of this war, be encouraged. Because by the end, I believe we will see that thread stringing across, still unbroken. A thread that will strengthen us to live by faith, even when everything we see appears lost. Let us look at this this passage, and we're going to see four treacherous acts that the enemy uses to oppose God's promise of redemption. The first one is in verses 1 and 2, which we have already read. The first treacherous tactic, the enemy confounds hope. The enemy confounds hope. When Eve announces, 
I have gotten a man by the help of the Lord. It is evident that she is looking back on that single promise in Genesis 3 that there will be a seed of the woman that is going to win the war. And she says, I have gotten that, that, that seed. I've gotten that man. He has been given by the Lord. But we, with Eve, find that that hope becomes misplaced. That hope is confounded as Cain goes bad. This narrative is written in a, in a way that we go through 25 verses without really anything to suggest Anything good is going to happen. Verse after verse after verse of things going from bad to worse. Those 25 verses represent decades in the life of Eve. We're told in uh, chapter 5 that it was at the age of 130 that Seth is born. I don't know how old Adam and Eve were when Cain and Abel were born. But I can imagine that many decades have passed before Seth. And so this hope that was laid into Cain, because Cain seemed to be the fulfillment of the promise, is confounded by Satan. And the question that rides through this chapter for the reader is, has the promise failed? I mean, when Cain goes bad, has the promise failed? That's the place of of doubt. And it's a dangerous place, but it's a, a common place. It's a tactic that the evil one uses again and again. If he can create question and doubt, if he can create a lack of, of trust in God's promise then he has begun to win the war of temptation in your heart. This is what happened with Eve. A small question of God's goodness was placed in her mind when, he, when, when uh, the serpent brought up, is God really being good to you and not letting you eat of that fruit? This is the same seed of doubt that infects Abraham, who waited decades for God's promise of a child to come and eventually says, I guess i got to do it my way, and goes into Hagar and births Ishmael. You see, this, this doubt is a way for, for the evil one, for the enemy, to confound us. And when we are confounded, we are very vulnerable to drifting away to falling into sin. But the narrative structure, we have to use the narrative structure of this, of this account to teach us. It's not accidental that God allows 25 verses to go where it gets bad to worse. He does that to show us that even after a long time of fruitlessness, a long time of hopelessness, God's promise is not going to fail. The narrative is teaching us to wait on the Lord in faith, no matter what. 
And when we say no matter what, I mean no matter what, because as we go to verses 3 through 7 and look at the next treacherous tactic, we are going to see how worse it, how much more worse it can get. Let us look now at verses 3 through 7. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. famous passage I'm sure we all know. Cain and Abel uh, are workers. Cain is a worker of the ground. Abel is is a shepherd. They come and they bring an offering to the Lord, and God regards the offering of Abel, but does not regard the offering of Cain. And in that, Cain's anger flashes up, and he, he becomes resentful. And God warns him in that, in that place of anger that sin is crouching at the door. We are, we are at the very threshold of a disaster that God warns against. What we see in this, in this section is, is the treacherous act that the enemy exploits the flesh. The enemy exploits the flesh. Before we see what that means in detail... Do you ask the question, why was there a different response? Why was Abel's offering received well and Cain's offering was not received well? It's been something that has uh, occupied commentators throughout the ages. Uh, There have been many suggested answers. Uh, One popular answer is to say, well... It comes down to the sacrifice. God clearly prefers an animal sacrifice. He prefers the bloody sacrifice. And Cain did not bring one of those. Instead, he brought fruit of the ground. He brought grain. But there's really nothing in the text to say that the issue with uh, the offering was in what was offered. I've read the text again and again and again, and I agree with the commentators that there's just not any support. That that is the issue that God is raising in not regarding Cain's sacrifice or offering. Some people take the view that it's just inscrutable. You know, God sometimes chooses to favor one and and chooses not to favor another, and that exists in the mystery of God's counsel, and we're not allowed to know why God regarded Abel and not Cain. Maybe. But I think the most satisfying answer comes from a careful reading. Listen again to verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord 
an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Do you hear anything different about the offerings that were given? Any different descriptors between the offering of Abel and the offering of Cain? Abel brought the firstborn. He brought the fat portions. He brought the first and he brought the best. That is what he offered to the Lord. Cain, in contrast, brings an offering, brings some portion, brings some amount. But the emphasis is on it being indiscriminate from the rest, whereas Abel focuses on the first and the best. Now, again, it is not what is offered that is on display to God. It is the heart on display based on the offerings that were given. You see, the offerings reveal the heart. Abel giving the first fruits and the best parts reveals he is acting out of love. He is acting out of faith. Cain simply giving an offering, giving some offering, but not necessarily a special offering, shows that he is taking this act as an obligation. This is confirmed based on the response. Cain gets angry. If his heart was to delight God, the question should have been, why God? Why wasn't my offering satisfying to you? What kind of offering would you desire, God? But that's not his response. His response is anger and opposition and to seethe. Hebrews, uh, the author of Hebrews, confirms this reading when in chapter 11, verse 4, he says, It's by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. You see, what was different between Cain and Abel is that Abel came to God in faith and a heart of love. Cain went through the motions, did it out of duty. And I think that is where the difference lies. Beloved, God knows the heart. God knows your heart. He knows whether you are worshiping externally or whether you are worshiping in the heart. He knows whether your offering is an offering of joy from the heart or whether it is simply something you do out of duty. He knows your heart. Isaiah 29, 13 reminds us very importantly, the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. You see, God knows whether your heart is in it, whether your heart is his. You may be able to deceive the people to your left and your right, but if your heart is not truly in the Lord then you have not been received 
What does he see? Does he see in you a joyful giver? Does God see in your offering that you have made him your first love? The anger that wells up in Cain shows that he is, he is given over to the flesh. He, he responds with anger, and anger is a classic foothold for the evil one to use. We're, we're reminded in Ephesians chapter 4, these words, verses 26 and 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The word opportunity there could also be translated foothold. Cain is angry. In this anger, he has created a foothold, a place for the evil one, for the enemy to exploit. Instead of of dealing with his anger and coming to the Lord to understand what sort of sacrifice he should have, he instead sees, he instead goes into bitterness, he instead goes into self-justification. You know that's what anger does. When you're angry, you start piling up the reasons you're right and they're wrong. And Cain is just mad. God is in the wrong for not accepting his sacrifice. And in that place of anger, he is vulnerable. The Lord warns him that sin is crouching at the door. The picture is like a lion ready to pounce, or maybe even more appropriate, like a serpent coiled to strike. It's close, Cain. Be careful, Cain. Don't allow this foothold to stay in your heart. But Cain does not listen. Cain does not repent. Cain does not relinquish his anger. And in so doing, it is right here that he becomes an agent of the enemy. He becomes part of the kingdom of Satan. This is clear when you look at the commentary on this passage from the Apostle John in his first letter. 1 John 3.12, he says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? He murdered him because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. You see, the enemy got the firstborn, the first child born outside of the garden. The evil one clutched him and won him. The world has exactly four people in it. And the evil one got Cain, the one that Eve was hoping in. Beloved, learn this lesson. The enemy uses temptation to wedge us from God's presence and God's promise. He wants you away from his promise, away from his word. He wants to use the foothold. And I ask you, do you have a foothold? Do you have anger in your heart? Lust? Self-pity? Pride, jealousy, these are all footholds that the evil one can take hold of and use it to wedge you away from God's promise. Cain is a reminder, fight sin or fall to it. 
Paul says the same in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And how do you put the, to death the, the, the deeds of the body by the Spirit? My friends, pray the Lord's Prayer. It is not by accident that our Lord left the Lord's Prayer with the petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The Lord knows your weakness. He knows the exploitability of your flesh. And he says, come to me day after day that you will not fall into temptation because it is only by prayer and the gift of the Holy Spirit that you will win this fight. So the firstborn has been taken. The situation becomes bleak, but the third treacherous task, uh, 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 tactic is still ahead. The enemy slays the righteous. The enemy slays the righteous. Listen now to verses 8 through 16. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And so we see now that that the anger has taken form in Cain. It is simply a matter of opportunity. Cain slays his brother Abel. His brother. The text shows us how treacherous sin is, how unbounded it is when it lodges in our hearts, what anger can do. His brother is used six times in this text. Brother is killed. And how is he killed? Cain Catches a plot. Let's go out to the field. And unsuspecting Abel in the field turns and Cain strikes him down. It's premeditated. He picked a place. He set a time. He followed through it. This is a murder in cold blood. And it is a murder with no remorse. Cain is hardened. Look at how he he deals with the Lord who comes to him graciously to to see what what Cain has done. Not that he doesn't know, but to, to speak to him, hopefully to make him aware and convicted of his sin. 
But Cain responds, am I my brother's keeper? Can you see how hardened and uninterested Cain is in remorse? This is the the tactic of the evil one. He uses gross injustice. Gross injustice. Genesis 4 shows us where all of the awful things in this world stem from. They stem from the evil one who does not play fair. The enemy isn't fair and he wins because of it. Look at this. Abel. He's faithful. He's doing the right thing. He's bringing the sacrifice from the heart. He hasn't done anything wrong in the text. He is the righteous one. And yet he is a complete victim. Abel's uh, name means breath. And that is all that we get of Abel. Abel, who does nothing wrong, is simply a blip. He's just a breath. He's, He's voiceless. He never says a word. And this is, the, this is the one in the passage who's done nothing wrong. The one who goes on to live and triumph and have a nice long life is Cain. The one under the evil one's control. I mean, this should make us angry, right? This is awful. This is the problem of evil. I was watching a documentary the other day about the efforts to eradicate polio. And there was, there was a point where we were down to less than a dozen, just a couple decades ago, a dozen cases in Nigeria of polio. And all we had to do was get the vaccines and the vaccinators to those people. But war broke out. And a terrorist group got so angry that they killed all the vaccinators. And the moment of winning was lost. That is, that is what happens with the evil one. He does not play fair. And diseases and death and injustice reign. Where is God? Where is God for Abel? We don't get an answer in the text. God punishes Cain. But he even in his punishment relents when when Cain whines, oh, that's just too much. Somebody might kill me. Well... Okay, but God shows even mercy and relents to Cain, giving him a mark that protects him. But, but does this fix anything? I mean, this chapter of, of cold-blooded murder, is this, is this a resolution? Look, look at the story right now. Abel, righteous one, is dead. Cain is lost. Where is the promise of God? There is no one on the earth to carry the promise of God that there will be one born of the woman. It looks like a total end. And perhaps you have felt like you have been here 
that the, the forces against you, the forces against your faith, the forces against your hope have been this fierce and total. I can't keep putting one step in front of the other. It is so bleak. It looks lost. And yet, I will tell you, there is one faint glimmer. And it is that God knows Abel's injustice. He says in verse 10 that Abel's blood, the voice of your brother's blood, is crying to me from the ground. We don't see any resolution to that, but we only know that God has heard the voice of this injustice. And so we are left to wonder, well, how will God deal with this injustice? Will anything be done? That is the question that drives the story of redemption forward. Will there be an answer to the injustice of this world? Will God solve the problem of evil? That is a deep and troubling question that must push us through the scriptures. But it gets worse. I know you were hoping that maybe it would get better, but there's a fourth treacherous tactic. The enemy establishes the godless. Verses 17 to 24, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And where he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adda, and the name of the other, Zillah. Adda bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Adda and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. The enemy establishes the godless. Not only does he exploit the flesh, confound hope, slay the righteous, he establishes the godless. Cain, in his punishment, flees from the Lord. He goes east. He has seven generations that are recorded in this passage. Cain's line prospers. They found a city. They are known for accomplishments. They multiply in peoples. Cain has gone on to become a fortress of man-centered godlessness. Look at Lamech. He has no conscience whatsoever. He redefines marriage into polygamy. He revels in violence. He celebrates injustice. At the, at the end of these verses, the whole world has gone to the enemy. Is there a war still to be fought? Or is it time to declare a victory? What we see in this passage, this fact, the enemy builds strongholds. He builds strongholds in culture. 
He builds strongholds in life. He builds strongholds in the world. His tactics appear to win. Is it is it time to raise the white flag? Our our country and our culture is pushing the question. Raise the white flag, compromise, settle, move the, the, the boundary just a little bit, get used to this, make peace with this. Beloved, resist. Do not be deceived by the, the impressive victories of the evil one because the story is not finished. Despite the enemy confounding hope, despite the enemy exploiting the flesh, despite the enemy slaying the righteous, and despite the enemy establishing the godless, despite all of that, the enemy fails to stop God's promise. Now here, verses 25 and 26, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son And called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. 25 verses of bleakness of the evil one having his way, but Eve is given another offspring, Seth. God's promise has not failed. It was not understandable at the beginning, but it has not failed. More, do you recognize that the enemy's victory actually creates his loss? Look at this. Cain, because of his treachery, is driven away from the Lord. And where is Seth born? Right there with Adam and Eve, where Cain has gotten away from as fast as he can. And so the enemy can't even get to Seth. Seth is left protected. Beloved, we live in a world where the evil one wants to show the bleakness and the absurdity and the folly of faith. He wants to give you 10,000 reasons why it will not work, why it is uh, foolishness, why it will fail, why he has won. But this chapter ends with the ringing note that God never loses. His promise never fails. From here we go to Egypt and Israel, where Egypt is powerful, but Israel is delivered. From Goliath and David, where Goliath is powerful and fearsome and seemingly the end, but David is given the power to knock out Goliath. To the greatest uh, tragedy and darkest hour of history, where Jesus is put on the cross, who dies and yet is raised to life, putting to death and putting to the end all who oppose the kingdom. Whereas Rome seek to, to persecute the church, Jesus promised the gates of hell will not prevail, prove themselves again and again and again. Hold fast to the promise. Do not despair. 
God's thread in this chapter may appear thin and even hard to find and even weak at times. But it is made of iron. Hold on to that promise. It will never break. Beloved, the people who call upon the name of the Lord will never be lost. That's the last word of Genesis 4. Why? Because the Lord is our Savior, Jesus Christ. God's Son. And it is His blood, His righteous blood, who according to Hebrews 12.24 speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It is because the promise is kept, the evil one loses. You see, beloved, Abel was a foreshadow. He was a promise. He was not the end. He was a a, a shadow of the great salvation that was to come. There will be a servant who is righteous, who suffers even though he serves the Lord. Abel's blood was not in vain. Abel's blood was a testimony that God will deliver his people through the blood of a righteous child, his own son. And when his blood spills, the voice declared from that blood will be the answer to all the injustice, all of the crime, all of the power of sin in this world that affects you and infects you because the blood shed by Jesus is righteous and washes away all unrighteousness. And the blood of Jesus was heard and answered so that three days later, the tomb that he was buried in was left empty which is the announcement that all of the Abel's and all of the injustices and all of the problems of evil in this world will not be left unanswered, but will experience the victory that is promised by faith alone in Jesus Christ, who says death does not get the last word. Beloved, Are you holding to that promise despite all the things your eyes tell you? Have you placed your faith and your trust in this gospel? It will deliver you from the darkest day. It will deliver you from the deepest sin. Take hold and God will never, ever forsake you. Amen.